following message is by Dr. Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Morning, everyone. Our text for this morning comes from the book of Luke, Luke chapter 10. Uh, we're going to look at verses 38 to 42, which ends the chapter. And the title of the message today is One Thing, One Thing. I would invite you to turn in your Bibles, if you have them with you, to that text. Otherwise, you can look up at the screen and read along as it says, Now as they were on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Can we pray? God, grant to us understanding the meaning of this story. Help us to understand what you are inviting us to, the one thing that Mary had that Martha was invited to find in her life. And we may find it in our life as well. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. At the beginning of the story, we find Jesus entering a village where he's welcomed by this woman named Martha uh, into her home for uh, what seems to be a meal and maybe even an overnight stay. Uh, As it says in verse 38, now as they entered on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. This seems to be Jesus' first encounter with Martha as well as Mary uh, and not mentioned in this story, but their brother Lazarus. Um, But it definitely will not be their last. Jesus would wind up developing a really close friendship with them uh, so that they not not only become just followers of his, but they become close friends of his. Um, And so it seems that whenever he passed through Bethany, which was just near Bethlehem and not that far off actually from Jerusalem, uh, where the three of them lived, Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus, it seems very likely that Jesus would stop over there. This would be one of his frequent stops in order to catch a meal with them and catch up with them and to connect with them. Uh, and it says in John chapter 11, verse 5, describing their relationship, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. It sort of reminds me, back in my college days, I used to be part of this gospel band called Alpha Omega, and we used to live a really crazy schedule, just crisscrossing all across the U.S., uh, leading revival meets and retreats. And sometimes we would go like weeks without a single day's rest, literally just jumping from one retreat to the next. But scattered throughout the East Coast and the Midwest, we had a handful of these families that were really gifted with the gift of hospitality. And so what they would do is they would open their house to us. And so if we had a couple days in between retreats, we would often go to these houses 
and we would just crash there, totally exhausted. They would open their house to us. Their house became our house. They would feed us like kings. And you know, just some people have the gift of hospitality, don't they? I mean, it was just, uh, we would just veg there and just relax and just recuperate and just re-energize for um, the next retreat that we would have to go to. And so even to this day, some of these families remain in my heart with these fond memories of the hospitality that they showed us during that time in my life. And I think, in a way, that's sort of how Mary and Martha acted for Jesus. I think they opened their house to him and welcomed him with a hand of friendship, it, particularly to a man who confessed that literally, I, you know, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but I literally don't know where I'm going to sleep the next night. I, I don't know where I'm going to lay my head, what, what rock is going to be my next pillow the next day that I sleep. And to have someone like Mary and Martha and Lazarus who would just open their door to him and welcome him anytime he was in the neighborhood would have been like an incredibly welcome sanctuary to Jesus. And I think a key part of this friendship that developed was because of Martha. As one commentator put it, Martha was the hostess with the mostest, you know. Um, I suspect that everybody looked forward to dinner parties at Martha's house. And it's likely that Martha was the eldest in the family because she's always named the first whenever the three of them are listed. And, you know, you could just sort of imagine, typical of the firstborn, she was the dutiful one that everybody else leaned on, the one who always made sure that everything was in order and everyone's needs were taken care of. Uh, If there was a problem, you would go to Martha and she would fix it. She was the one that you turned to. Her younger sister Mary, not so much, okay? Um, While Martha is running around like a crazy woman trying to get dinner on the table, Mary is sitting there at Jesus' feet with her big doe eyes, oblivious to everything that is going on around her. You can sort of imagine what Martha must have been thinking that night. Well, I wish I could just sit there and listen to Jesus all day too. But some of us have to actually work around here. The dinner is not going to make itself, so I'm the one that ends up having to shoulder everything here. I have to do it. I suspect that for some of you, the story kind of gets your blood pressure rising a bit, doesn't it? And listen, I think this is the dirty little secret that most Christians are not willing to admit. I suspect that for a lot of you, you are actually more sympathetic to Martha than you are to Mary. You know, Mary ends up the hero of this story, but I think in truth, we feel like secretly Martha is the hero, you know? She's the one that should get the credit here. You may be thinking to yourself, uh, I feel your pain, Martha. I mean, I have some Marys in my life too, like the one sitting next to me right now, you know? And I I know exactly what you're going through right now. Um, Listen. I think the real surprise of this story is that Martha seems to have a very legitimate complaint against her sister. But Jesus, interestingly, seems to side with Mary and not Martha. Now, why doesn't Jesus rebuke Mary for her selfishness and insensitivity? Just sitting there while her sister is doing all the work. Haven't you ever wondered that? I mean, what's going on here? It seems like 
the story is all twisted and upside down in some ways. If we are really honest, this story seems to violate some very deep sense of justice that we all have. That, you know, this is not right. I mean, actually, I think Jesus got it wrong here. I don't think that Martha should be blamed here. It's like you're blaming the victim in the crime. When Mary is really the one, that's the problem. Well, I want to begin with a closer look at what's happening here in Martha's heart in order for us to understand the lesson that Jesus was trying to teach her that day so that we too can understand what God may be trying to say to us. You see, Martha started off well. She was doing what any good host would be expected to do, working hard to prepare a good meal for her guest. But watching her sister in the corner sitting there at Jesus' feet while she was doing all the work, a storm began to brew in Martha's heart. I think that's why in Luke 39 to 40, it says, And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to His teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. You see, Martha's problem started when she became distracted by the very work that she was doing. That word distracted in verse 40 is actually interesting because it literally means to be dragged away, to be dragged away. In other words, I think what is being said here is that through all of the hard work that Martha was doing, it actually caused her to pull her off course from the very purpose for why she was doing the work in the first place. She lost focus. She lost direction. Charles Spurgeon put it like this. Her fault was not that she served. Her fault was that she grew cumbered with much serving so that she forgot him and only remembered the service. You see, I think Martha started with a genuine desire to honor Jesus by serving him an amazing meal. But as time went on, she totally lost sight of that original goal. And so now Martha is like a ship wandering, lost at sea. And when she took her eyes off of Jesus, they naturally fell on herself. And as a result, every minute that she served began to result in greater irritation, greater bitterness, greater anger building in her heart. And this eventually leads to this self-righteous resentment against her sister, Mary. David Gooding put it like this. It was not, of course, that speaking of Martha, it was not, of course, that she did not enjoy his conversation. She would have enjoyed it as much as Mary. But she had very clear and very strong ideas on what things just had to be done when you were entertaining so important a guest as the Lord. If asked, she doubtless would have explained that true love is practical and that work must be put before pleasure. And it was, that this, it was this that filled her with resentment when Mary left off working and went and sat at the Lord's feet and listened to His Word. It meant that Mary was getting all the pleasure and Martha was getting all the work, her own share and Mary's as well. To Martha's way of thinking, Mary was being selfish, unprincipled, and unfair. And I'm sure some of you secretly are saying amen to that in your heart. I mean, you can almost picture the dirty looks 
that Martha must have been throwing Mary's way as she is running around like a chicken with her head cut off in the kitchen trying to prepare this feast. Maybe she was even really intentionally banging the pots and pans really loudly to get Mary's attention, to see if her clueless sister would figure out what's going on. Actually, probably not because they were made out of clay, but she she might have done something. I don't know. And after a while, Martha cannot take it anymore. So she loses it. And she blurts out to Jesus, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. It's clear from this question that she asked Jesus that her anger has now turned to self-pity. Don't you even care what I am going through here, slaving in the kitchen all by myself, why my selfish little sister doesn't even lift a finger to help me? And you get the sense from the way that she talks to Jesus that she is actually just as angry at Jesus as she is at her sister. Jesus, you are as much to blame for what's happening here because you're just sitting here watching this drama unfold and you are doing nothing to fix this problem. You are an enabler, you know? I mean, you are just as much the problem here. Now, let me stop and say this. Anytime you are yelling at God, bossing him around, and telling him what to do, it's a pretty good indication that something wrong has gone on with your heart. And here's the first teaching point that I want to draw to your attention. The scary truth is that our efforts to serve God can be the very cause of turning against Him. Our efforts to serve God can be the very source that turns us against Him. And I want to ask you that as an honest question this morning. Can you relate to the things that were going on in Martha's heart that that day? Have you experienced this drift in your own heart as you are working for God and working and working? And what you really discover is secretly there is this resentment that is building up in your heart toward others or even toward God Himself. And eventually that resentment leads to self-pity. Why don't others work as hard as I do? Why is it that I have to shoulder everything? Why do I have to do everything? You see, when we take our eyes off of Jesus, the natural place that they fall is on ourselves. And when we become consumed with ourselves, that's when we become adrift and wandering and lost to the original reason why we're doing everything in the first place. And there is no longer any joy in the work that we do. And you start wallowing in your own self-pity. And God receives no glory from that kind of work that is done with a complaining and bitter spirit. Now, I think this is why Jesus didn't yell at Mary. I think this is why Jesus didn't take Martha's side and just say, yeah, Mary, what is your problem? Why don't you get up off of your lazy behind and go help your older sister? You see, I think what Jesus was telling Martha was this. The problem is deeper than just equally dividing the workload, Martha. And so Jesus addresses the heart of the matter in responding to Mary's complaint in the following way in verse 40. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. 
You know, notice that Jesus didn't rebuke Martha because of her work itself, but for the attitude that she harbored while she was doing this work. You see, Martha's was not a soul at peace, but one that was filled with restlessness and worry and resentment. Martha lived in a world in which everything depended on her performance, her ability to pull through in every situation. It was all up to her. The weight of the world was on her shoulders. One of the opposites of faith is worry. And Martha was filled with worry. You know, this is always the job hazard of those among us who are kind of like Martha. And you need to be able to know if you are that person, right? There are those among us, the dutiful ones, the ones that everybody else sort of leans on, the dependable ones, the firstborns, you know? Uh, And for those of us who fit into that category, you understand these dynamics very well, right? Your eyes are always on yourself. You're always thinking about what you have to get done. There's this resentment toward others. Why don't others pull their weight? Why aren't they doing their share? And I want to ask you, what is your stress level like these days? Do you feel the weight of the world on your shoulders? Do you feel like it's all up to you to make your life work, to make your family work, to make your marriage work? And what happens out of that is you begin to wallow in the sense of poor me. You find yourself in self-pity. You find yourself in resentment and anger and bitterness toward other people. Jesus continues in his response to Martha, and he says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken from her. You see, what he was saying to Martha was in essence this, by sitting at my feet and listening to my teaching." Mary got it right on the one thing that truly matters the most in life. On the one thing that really matters, Mary got it right and you got it wrong. You see, it's not about your hard work, Martha. I love you for your hard work. I'm so blessed by the fact that you're slaving away at the kitchen to offer me, to prepare me a wonderful feast. I don't fault you for that but you've missed the mark completely on the one thing that really matters, that Mary is getting right, and that is to center your life on me and who I am. It's interesting that Jesus uses this specific word, portion. Mary has chosen the good portion. That word is commonly referred to meals that are served. And so by using this particular word, what Jesus seems to be saying to Martha is this. You are so obsessed about the meal that you're trying to prepare for me, but you don't understand the meal that I have prepared for you. And what's more important is what I am trying to serve to you this day than what you are trying to serve to me, which your sister has chosen to receive, but you have rejected In other words, before we can serve God and others, 
we must first be served by Him. That is such an important truth for us to remember. That before you are ever in a posture of able to give to others, you must first be in a position to receive from God. Otherwise, you have nothing to give to others. In other words, if you don't first allow the words of God to feed your hungering soul, you will not have the resources to give to others and to honor them with the things that you have to provide for them. I want to say this. There is a real danger of reading this story too superficially. And what I mean by it is this. There are, I talked, I, I, I outed you guys who are type A, you know, busy bees, workaholics, you know, that are always the dutiful ones. But there are also some of us in our church that are the laid-back, relaxed ones, right? The couch potatoes. The ones that really don't get a high blood pressure over almost anything. And there is a real danger that as you are listening to this message, you actually feel like you get a freebie this week, you know? Uh, you actually feel like this is your day, this is, you know, this is your day of vindication as you're nudging your spouse. This is what I've been trying to tell my wife for years. You're too high-strung. You need to relax more. And you need to get out of my face when I'm trying to relax. You know, because you are more easygoing, you may think, you know, well, that's the message, isn't it? Is that what Jesus is saying is, uh, don't be so uptight. Don't be such a worrywart. Relax. Take it easy. Um, I don't think that's actually what Jesus is saying here. I don't think that is his message. Um, in fact, I would argue that the job hazard for those of you who are too laid back is that often that laid back attitude can cause you to live rather irresponsibly and frankly live in denial and not take responsibility for the genuine things you need to take care of. And the truth is that no matter how relaxed a person you are, every one of us will encounter storms in our life that are going to knock us off of our feet. Even the most relaxed person will come upon that day when the anxiety builds up. And just simply having a relaxed temperament isn't going to save the day. Jesus' message to Martha was not, you're working too hard. You need to take a chill pill and just relax like Mary is doing. I think this is ultimately the message. Whether you are a high-strung, busy-bee type or a laid-back, nothing-phases-you type, we all need to hear the message that Jesus must be the center of your life. That is the only sure thing. That is the one thing that you need to get right in your life if you get everything else wrong. The real problem is that there are so many ways that we can shipwreck our lives by living for all of the wrong things and missing that one thing that really counts in life. Way back when I was preaching through the book of Ephesians, I shared about how I downloaded this silly little free game for my iPhone called We Rule. And uh, uh, I started playing it uh, just as a way to kill time when I was bored. And uh, I became frightened at how quickly I got addicted to this game. It's one of these farming games, you know? And I started... It, the whole genius of this game actually was that there was a glitch. There was a program, pro, programming glitch that allowed you to overlap the different el design elements so that 
totally against the creator's intention, you could create actually elaborate kingdoms through this game, taking advantage of this glitch. And so I began to create these realms one after another. And every time my phone began to beep after a while, my wife Betty would look at me with disdain and go, you got to harvest your asparagus again? <laughs> and, uh, uh, I, and I would look at her and go, yeah. <laughs> and then I'd have to go, and, go harvest them and plant more asparagus. Um, and I began to find myself just, this was my ice kingdom, you know? And this was, this is another one of my, this was my fantasy fairy realm. And I just began to create one realm. And I mean, down to the absolute last pixel, aligning these things perfectly. And then I found these forums that were people equally obsessed as I was, that were just living for this game. And we would commiserate about how we're setting alarms to harvest our things properly. And, uh, you know, there was big galleries where everyone was posting their works of art so that we could all gawk and say, oh, that's such a beautiful realm, and let me share my realm with you, and we're doing that. And so I actually became part of this online community that really rallied around this game. And after uh, a couple of years of this, uh, one day, this notification showed up when I booted up the game. Important service announcement. Service for We Rule will end on March 31st, 2013. The developers killed the game. Went on to the forums, and pandemonium ensued. As everyone was writing, we got to start a petition campaign. We will not let this game die. And it was, it was fascinating to watch the death of this game over the next two months. Uh, you, you went through all of the state classic stages of grief, <laughs> denial, anger, bargaining, then depression, and then finally acceptance, you know? Uh, it was really frightening to watch this. I mean, uh, I felt this grief in my own heart because of all of the wasted hours I had poured into this game. But there were some people that confessed as the game was dying and about to shut down that they had literally spent thousands of dollars on this game as well. One lady confessed that she had spent over $60,000 playing this game, okay? And now the developers were killing it. And she would write these long rants and posts, what am I going to do now? What am I going to do with my life? It's really depressing, isn't it? It's really sad to think I poured the last two years of my life to this stupid game, and now it's gone. When you try to boot up the app icon, you get an error message, and there you go. All you have left are a bunch of screenshots to remember those glory days. But it doesn't have to be a video game. It could be your career. It could be a hobby, a recreation. It could be your retirement. I don't know what it is that you feel like is the one thing that you're obsessing over right now. Maybe it's your beauty. Maybe it's your health. I don't know. But one day what Jesus says is, everything is going to pass. Everything has an expiration date. And when that expiration date finally catches up to you, you're going to have to look long and hard 
at the mirror of your life and say, what was it all about? What did I live for? Was it worth it? Was any of this really worth it? And I think that's what Jesus was saying to Martha that day. You're filled with anxiety because of these many things that rack your soul. But there is one thing, one thing that you've got to get right and that matters. And that's your relationship to me. And Mary recognizes this. Mary found the one thing that really matters. I think the truth is that it's so easy to lose focus of the one thing. The psalmist writes in Psalm 27, verse 4. Um, uh, th- uh, actually, before that, uh, just pointing out uh, this truth that what God says is what God wants more than your service is a relationship with you. And I think that's one of the things that becomes so easy for us to lose sight of. In Psalm 27, verse 4, psalmist writes, One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. That is the heart of the psalmist. One thing, one thing that I want in life is to be able to spend my life gazing at the beauty of my God and being in fellowship with Him. It was interesting, this past prayer meeting, um, afterwards, um, just went out to IHOP, which is right next to our ministry center with two of my fellow elders, uh, Joseph and Andy. And we just sort of hung out there. It was kind of late, uh, but I don't know. I don't, I don't know why. I mean, none of us wanted to quite go home yet, I think, <laughs> and get back to reality maybe. So we, we all went to IHOP, and we just ate a late-night meal, and uh, one of the things I realized as we were sitting around eating together at IHOP really late at night was, uh, like, every time I'm with these guys, there's always some agenda there, you know? It's always, there's some business at hand that we got to deal with. But when we went to IHOP that night, there was no agenda there. So we just hung out, and we were eating and just talking, and, and we were just talking about, our, it was funny, because we were talking about our high school days. Well, yeah, what kind of guy were you in high school and? After hearing all that, I was like, well, maybe some of us should not be elders. I don't know. But it was, it was no, just kidding. No, just, just kidding. But it was, it was just a fun way to just connect. And as I was thinking about that and thinking about this message, I, I was thinking, what is it that God desires of us? And I think so often we get so caught up doing and doing and doing. And our Christian life is all about being busy for the Lord. Busy, busy, busy. You know, there's so much work to be done and we got to get these things done and we got to build the church and, oh, you know, I got to have my quiet time and everything is a checklist. Everything is a to-do list. And it's so easy in the midst of all that to really forget about the one thing that Jesus is most interested in, which is simply, could you just sit a while could you just sit down in the booth next to me and can we just spend some time together? And can we just talk? Can you just share? Can you just share with me what is really on your heart? The things that haunt you at night that you just want to hand over to me. Can you just talk to me like a friend? What Jesus was saying is one thing, one thing to get right in this life. And if you miss that one thing, you've missed the whole thing. You've missed the whole point 
of your life. Jan Johnson writes, as followers of Christ, many of us would like to live a conversational life with God and be filled with a deeper sense of God's companionship. We'd also like to change to be more like, to be more kind and less crabby, more generous and less self-absorbed, more genuine and less forced. But she points out that the reason why we can never seem to realize these things that we hunger for so much, this life of inner peace, she writes, is because we're trying to breathe in the oxygen of real life with God without breathing out the daily chaos that chokes out such interaction. What Johnson is trying to say to us is that you can't have the one thing unless you let go of some of the other things that are choking out your soul. There are some hard choices to be made in life. You can't have it all. We can't all live as monks or nuns in a monastery and live an ascetic life. We, we don't have that luxury. There is work to be done, and yet at the same time, I want to argue to you, there are priorities that have to be arranged in your life. Otherwise, this one thing will never become the one thing in your life. This is Holy Week, also sometimes called Passion Week, that we're entering into, the final week of Lent as we approach the Easter celebration next Sunday. And as your pastor, what I want to invite you to as part of ICC is to try to unplug a little from the many things that capture your heart. I don't know what that is for you. It's bringing work home. Maybe you can leave some of those files in your office. Maybe for you, it's the endless stream of mind-numbing recreation that you seem to be consumed with, your addictions. And could I invite you to maybe lay those things aside this week and spend some time in simplicity and in devotion sitting at the feet of Christ and not as just one more thing you've got to check off on your to-do list, but to simply have that heart of Mary that longingly wants to be with Jesus and to simply receive from Him the things that He wants to give to you. Let's pray. As I was preparing this message, um, I think God was convicting my heart in a lot of ways. Um, you know, we've been building this Thrive Network between our church and Harvest Church these last couple of years, and truth be told, um, I just often feel this baseline level of stress like a weight on me that just never goes away because in addition to all the duties for ICC, uh, acting as the chair of the Thrive Board, I just, it's just, sometimes it feels like this crushing weight trying to write these charter documents and constitutions and mission statements and, um, you know, I just, sometimes I just stay up at night and just, I feel like I'm unraveling sometimes. And I realize um, I need this message. And I find myself, on the other hand, pulled to these lesser desires. I think often it's really nothing more than a form of escape and denial because I don't really want to face reality. So I try to find ways to anesthetize the anxiety. And 
to then get drawn into these unhealthy addictions, to things that really don't solve anything. They just help me to forget for a little while. It's kind of like a form of self-medication. And I think that's really what's being addressed here in this passage in Luke 10. It's not about who's a busy bee and who is more contemplative. It's not about that. It's about have you gotten the one thing right in your life that matters more than anything else? Because unless you get that one thing right, nothing else really is right in your life. And I think that's the thing that Martha missed that day. She was so focused on herself and all of the things that she needed to get done to make her life work. And because of that, she actually became angry at God and angry at others. And she became adrift in the sea of self-pity and resentment and bitterness and anger. And said, Jesus, why don't you do something? Don't you even care about me? Do you just, don't you just see what I'm going through and you're just sitting and watching this? Why don't you do something? And to Martha, the problem was out there. The problem that needed to be fixed was in her world. And Jesus was saying, you know, the real problem is in your heart. What I need to fix is your heart. Saying, Martha, your sister Mary has chosen the one thing that really matters, sitting at my feet. I want to just invite you to just pray for a few minutes right now as we get ready to close our worship and some songs of response. And would you just bring that to the Lord and say, God, uh, I feel like actually, yeah, like, a lot of nights I find myself grinding my teeth and I, I, I feel a headache rising, the stress tension headache in my temples and I do feel really stressed out and I feel very resentful for the people in my life. I find myself often judging them and I'm frankly even angry at you because I don't feel like you're doing enough for me. And maybe what Jesus is inviting you to do is to take a deeper look at your heart and saying, you know, you need to put me at the center. You need to just sit at my feet before you can give to me and give to others. You have to be humble enough to receive from me. And you need to open your heart to what I'm trying to give to you, but you refuse to receive. So could you just sit at my feet and just be my friend for a few minutes and just talk with me and let my words enter your heart and penetrate through that wall that you've built. And let it be sweeter than honey. Let it be healing to your soul. Let it be words of comfort, words of love that will restore your soul, enable you to return to your family, to return to your spouse, to return to your children, overflowing with the love that you need to be able to give to them. Let me just invite you to pray like that for a few minutes as we come before God in prayer.